everyone, this is Dr. Liz, and you're listening to Include with Dr. Liz. This show is about everyone, all people, including you. It's about people and their diverse lived experience in this world. I chat with guests to get to know them, their identities and their inclusion needs. So we all have an opportunity to understand how best to include them. So together, we can create a world where everyone thrives. Jonathan is a poker-playing, seafood-hating husband and parent with a physical disability. Described by some as a fierce but quiet fighter who is hopeful and positive, Jonathan gets to put his idealism into action in his role working in ageing and disability for the state of Connecticut. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me, Dr. Liz. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now, I'd like to ask, what led you to your focus on aging and disability in your work? So I grew up in uh, in West Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, at the time that I grew up, there was no Americans with Disabilities Act. And my family, I was born in spina bifida, which uh, can vary in terms of how it affects uh, how it affects you physically and and otherwise. But my paralysis is only from the knees down, and I have really no other. Uh, mental impairments or really other physical impairments. Uh, as such, my parents made the decision that they wanted me to be treated, quote unquote, as normally as possible throughout my entire life. And so their advocacy for me began right away, uh, along with my older brother. So I was the first in my town with a with a physical disability to be mainstreamed through the West Hartford public school systems. I was the first kid in a wheelchair to play uh, Little League baseball in, in the history of the state. I was uh, the first kid in, uh, in, the, in a wheelchair to play uh, for a high school tennis team in the state. So there was a lot of trailblazing and, and firsts that I accomplished, in large part because my family created those opportunities uh, that led me to really want to be an advocate going forward. Because as, as much of an honor and as much pride you can take in, in being the first, uh, there's a lot of daunting and frustrating periods of time and periods of isolation that you go through, uh, particularly as a child going through all of those things. Uh, and it really set a framework for for uh, how I approached advocacy into my adulthood. Thank you for sharing that. Now, there's something I want to pick up from where you said you were the first to be mainstreamed. So mm-hmm. what was the alternative? If you didn't go to a mainstream school, what kind of school would you have gone to? So my understanding is I would have ultimately, or I should say otherwise, have been put through special education. Mm-hmm. And the West Hartford public school system at that time really was not equipped or didn't really know how to deal with a, a student in a wheelchair from an accessibility standpoint. Mm-hmm. And again, because the ADA didn't exist, there weren't a lot of schools that had that had even elevators, for example. So the mm-hmm. first school that I went to, which was a uh, a Catholic school uh, I went to th- until I was in fourth grade. Uh, it was a multi-story building with nothing but with nothing but stairs, and so I had to be carried around by the eighth graders, uh, which were the oldest kids in the school at the time, to my various classrooms, to my various classes, uh, and even outside for for recess. Uh, and for recess, they were so nervous about me physically that their idea of me participating in recess was bringing my desk chair out into the playground and essentially having me sit in that chair 
watching the other kids play. They did nothing in terms of inclusion. Let's include John in, you know, this game or that game. Dr. Liz, I even got in trouble once because a kid came over to me in my chair and wanted to play with matchbox cars. So I got on the ground to play with him. Mm-hmm. And I got in trouble for that because I got out of the chair that I was in. This is other people placing their limitations on you, their assumptions and their limitations on you, not the other way around. That's exactly right. Instead of including me in the conversation and saying, well, what what can you do? They were so focused on what I couldn't do or what they perceived that I couldn't do mm-hmm. that they that was how they handled me. Yeah. I can't let go of how the alternative would have been going to a school where your intellectual and cognitive capacity was assumed as not capable just because you're in a chair. Correct. It's mind-boggling and how limiting that would have then been for every other aspect of your life by not receiving the actual intellectual and cognitive education that you deserved. I agree completely. And the power of that single decision by my by my parents is is life altering. Mm-hmm. It, I, I'm I'm 100 percent in part where I am in life because of that decision that they made mm-hmm. socially, um, professionally, everything else. Right. It's it's that that one decision by them altered the course of my in, in, entire life. A hundred percent. And I bet that they faced a lot of no's. And a lot of rejections, and they had to push and fight for that place for you. Oh, I, I, I would say that that's one hundred percent accurate. I don't know. I, I've never had full discussions with them on, on, on how far they had to go, mm-hmm. uh, but I know it was not an easy road. Uh, I'm certain that they faced a lot of no's, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, well, how do we do this? And everyone had to figure it out together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but but the one key element I think that was missing that I think we're a little bit better at now is let's include the person in that conversation Yeah. because mm-hmm. nobody knows how to deal with them better than they do, even if they're the even if they're a child. Now. I have the visual in my mind of you needing to go from one class to the other. Like when you get into high school and you're not just sitting in the same class with the same teacher for the whole day. Sure. And um, the visual of you getting to a set of stairs and having to be carried by someone, if you're fortunate enough to have someone there at the same time that you're there. How does that feel for someone? I think in the early days, you know, first grade, maybe second grade, you're small, you're still a kid, and and you don't maybe notice it as much. You're not as self-aware. Uh, the older you get, the more, and the, and also the bigger you get, mm-hmm. not just physic- physically, but, but, you know, by age as well, mm-hmm. you become a little bit more self-conscious of it. And certainly by fourth grade, it, it, got, it got to the point where not only was it, it was it, getting to the level of being humiliating for me but you get to a point where eighth eighth grade boys can't physically pick you up anymore I was never a very big kid but you knew you were reaching a point that that it 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 was becoming impossible for them to do it for you anymore and you're also getting older and the eighth graders are now closer to being your peers Mm -hmm. so that doesn't that doesn't seem right either Mm -hmm. 
And so I finally transferred in, at, at fifth grade into a, a school that had an elevator and, and uh, things from that standpoint got a little bit better. There was still a lot of isolation and, and you know, how do we how do we deal with this? You never quite felt, I never felt quite like a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, you, really. You felt like a I problem, didn't you, John? I felt like a, a problem. I felt like a like an object. I felt like an outsider. Uh, I always felt that there was this invisible wall between me and and my classmates and and school administration and 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 all of that. Yeah, for a long time. It's so disappointing when inclusion is addressed as a problem to be solved like looking at it as a problem rather than just to be a person to be included. Um, and it might to some seem like a small nuance, but it is a very powerful difference. Now, we've scooted ahead because <laughs> I usually, only a couple of minutes in, ask our guests from their questionnaire that they did in, in advance of the podcast from the really big long list of identities. They ticked some. Now, you ticked two. What were they for you? Well, you know, I'm going to answer that, and then I'm going to sort of flip the script on you here, Doctor Ruth, mm-hmm. because um, because I, I I have an opportunity to. So, but I believe it was male and person with a disability, if I'm not mistaken. But I want to take a step back from that when mm-hmm. we talk about identity, and and share a story with you that that really shaped how I approach identity. Disability, in and of itself, is it's individualized and it's nuanced. One person's experience with a disability is very different from the next even if they have the same disability. With that being said, the story that I wanna share with you comes from an experience that I had in college. I went to a college that focused on, or had a a specialization in the disability community, the disability population. And when I got there, they they invited all of their, their students with disabilities to a disability awareness forum. So I went to the forum and it was a large, portion, 20 or 30 students or so, kids in wheelchairs, the the total population of the school was about 600. And they sat us around in a circle. And the first question they asked us, Dr. Liz, was they said, how do you want to be referred to? And they said, do you want to be referred to as handicapped, physically challenged, disabled, or something else? And I was roughly about halfway around the circle. And I was immediately taken aback by that question because it sets the tone, right, for the whole the whole event you're going to participate in. And I thought, this is not for me. So they go around the circle and people are saying handicapped, physically challenged, disabled, maybe one or two others. They get to me and, and I said, I want to be referred to as John Slifka. Can I high five you through the podcast? <laughs> yeah. And then I left because I thought if this is, I'm more evolved than this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is 1995. The ADA is, you know, fairly brand new and maybe disability awareness is fairly brand new. But you know what? Let's talk about identifying people as a person first. Mm-hmm. And their disability is a part of them. It is a part of their identity. It is not who they am. And it doesn't completely define them. Uh, look, I could not agree with you more, John. So the more people I talk to, even just through this podcast uh, hosting experience, is that not even all people with a disability identify with their disability. So Correct. even asking, asking them to tick a box, are you disabled or whatever, they no, they're not going to tick it because they don't identify with it. They just see it as part of them. 
how we identify is unique to every individual. And yes, some people may very strongly identify with their disability, um, but others may not at all. And some people are somewhere in between. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that story. When it comes to access, right, because you will (laughs) know better than me um, and better than most the impact of not having physical access to a place or space. So on the other side of the coin, if I'm working with an organisation, they're like, it costs too much to put the ramp in. It costs too much to put the accessible toilet in. It costs too much to put the lift in. I want to go back to what does it feel like when you get to a space or a place and you can't access it? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm tired of it anymore. Uh, I think that, look, Connecticut is a colonial state. There's a lot of of older structures, historical structures here. Uh, so in a lot of ways, it's 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 challenging even to this day. The reality is, if it's not accessible, more often than not, I leave, and mm-hmm. leaving makes an impact because somebody then has to answer well why especially if it's you know a a specific specialized kind of event why isn't john here and i use this term very directly introduce this concept of universal design which is not a new concept but a lot of people haven't heard of it and those that have will say well you know we're concerned about aesthetics and we're concerned about this and i'll say okay well when I'm sitting outside your aesthetically beautiful building because I can't get into it, I'll wait for you to come tell me how beautiful it is. Take some pictures for me. You have to drive those kinds of things home because there are ways to make things accessible for everybody from a physical structure standpoint. I'm going to say that something that might be a little contentious for some listeners, but when we talk about inclusion and access, Access isn't just about the physical barrier to inclusion into the room. It's also about the acceptance into the room. So we wouldn't accept segregation any longer. We wouldn't accept someone being left outside because of the colour of their skin. So if you apply that same principle, if you aren't ensuring that someone in a chair or with physical uh, needs is left outside, then you're just as guilty as someone leaving someone with a different colored skin outside. I completely agree with that. And, and, and consider this as the backdrop for that, Dr. Liz. In the United States, the disability community is now the largest minority in the country. What's the, your statistic that you're running off now? Oh, it's 50 plus a million Americans. Okay. Uh, have, 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 um, have identified that they have a disability. Yeah. Now, that let's talk about that for a second in two terms one we both know that's an underreported number for just the reason that we discussed earlier people don't identify that they have a disability for a host of reasons whether they just don't identify with it they don't know that they have one they won't identify that they have one out of fear right there's all there's all sorts of reasons but the other reason that is a huge number is because disability is everywhere every race every culture every gender every gender identity, sexual identity, it's universal. Let's begin to flip the script on DEI and examine it first through the disability lens. 
because you're bound to include more people at the outset by force. Yeah. You, if you're looking at things through disability, you have to look at it through race. You have to look at it through gender. You have to look at it through gender. And if you're starting with one of the other minorities, I argue you're not necessarily doing that. And I could be proven wrong and, and happy to have that discussion with whomever. Now, I absolutely think that's a great tip for people if they're trying to find somewhere to start. So I think that's a great idea. Um, I would extend on that because I would be concerned that if someone was to, people tend to make assumptions that disability inclusion is about someone being blind, someone being deaf, or someone being in a wheelchair. I'm generalising, but that's essentially what they imagine. Sure. And if we think about inclusion just from an access point of view for a person with a disability, we're missing out on the whole person. Um, so all I would say is there's a whole lot more to inclusion for someone with a disability, but I do like the idea of ensuring that the personas that you're considering when you're devising your inclusion solutions, that they address disability needs. So fabulous. I absolutely agree. Sure. And I would just, if I could add to that very quickly, I would just say that unless you are otherwise a white male, straight white, straight white male with a disability, which yes, that is me, you are disabled and, yes. right? So now you're multi-marginalized or you have the potential to be multi-marginalized. Brilliant. And I might, if you haven't seen it, send you through my recently published journal article on the eight inclusion needs of all people. And you'll see That'd that I have access as the number one inclusion need of all people and then all of the other seven underneath so that sounds good to me <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that i align with your thinking <laughs> another assumption that people often make when we're thinking about access and inclusion for people with a disability is again that it is the deaf blind or person in a wheelchair but that it's something that's permanent it's someone's permanent identity or lived experience but in fact disability inclusion and access is important to those of us that may have injured their knee just had surgery um mm -hmm. i don't know i mean there's a whole bunch of access um, sure aspects there i mean i i had a motorbike accident many years ago now and i did injure my knee and I was in a brace and i had to go see a physio a couple of weeks after the um injury and I can't tell you how many physios were up a set of stairs. And I kept looking at them thinking, how do you expect me to, do you want me to slide on my ass backwards up your stairs to come into your clinic? No, so, they probably told you it was part of your physical therapy. <laughs> that, that would be their excuse, yes. So no, not word, what, not alert, word of a lie. I went driving around until I found a physio that had um, street access. So Wow. In, Inclusion isn't just for people that identify of that 50 million, did you say, people with a disability? 50, 50 plus million. 50 plus million. There's actually yep. so many more than that. So let's talk about language first. Now, you used the term handicap. Now, I'm originally from Australia, just in case people can't place my accent. Um, in Australia, we have gone away with the term handicap and so it would be either called a disabled parking spot or an accessible parking spot yes um so but i hear now when i'm in the states i've been here 12 months now that it is still referred to as a handicap space that in a term, lot of places yeah does that term have any negative connotations for you 
It does. And actually, in Connecticut, we, we changed it. I was part of a, a law that changed it here in Connecticut uh, when I was working in the governor's office, where we changed not only the symbol of access to a more um, active looking person in a wheelchair. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. And we did. We made that change. This is going back about six years now. But we also it's now says, I believe, in most places, reserved parking. So it's reserved parking and also and it's got the, the symbol, uh, the symbol of access. So we've changed that here, but uh, I mean, I still make the the, yeah. the mistake of of calling it handicap parking, and uh, I'd have to look at our at the permits now. I don't know what I don't know what language are on on our permits. I'm I'm sad to say, but but it is still in in most of the country. Uh, I think yeah. it's still referred to as, as handicap parking. And I think we would benefit from, from practicing accessible language, you know, so if we just called it accessible parking, I mean, I love the idea right. of reserved as well. That's super cool. Um, yep. But accessible parking, at least then it's only one sort of um, term that we have to learn because I think it would also be beneficial to take accessible across to our reference to restrooms, um, that accessible restroom, that it's not yes. um, another referenced um, term. Okay, yes. so that's a discussion of language. That's a really good point. And even that you personally yourself worked on an initiative to improve language, um, you still are using the most popular term that's used by others. Yeah, okay. Now, I did. You caught me. <laughs> it, wasn't it wasn't a deliberate trap, I promise. <laughs> um, now, there are a lot of people that might actually go, you know what, there's always so many accessible parking spots. So... I don't see anyone around me that needs it. So I'm just going to pull in there. I'll only be 10 minutes. Right. How does that impact you? It, it endlessly frustrated, mm. epically frustrated, because especially if it's somewhere important that I need to be and, and now I'm I'm struggling to find parking, you know, I think, and I don't know how to fix that because that's, that's attitude on the people that are parking there. Mm -hmm. Because the prevailing attitude is people just think it's okay if they're doing it for as you said, for 10 minutes, a, a quick stop in. I'm not, I'm not staying long. I'm not, I'm not this, or, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen people that, that, that they don't have the permit, but then as sometimes they're coming out to their car as I'm pulling up and they'll see my permit and all of a sudden they'll start faking a limp or something like that. Let's be, <laughs> let's be clear. Let's yeah. be honest about it. I'm that. not about laughing that. because it's funny. I'm laughing at the absurdity. Exactly. There's a challenge on that on the, on the other side, Dr. Liz, which is, Somebody that has a permit, but again, there's so many there's so many invisible disabilities. We don't know. No. Somebody might be walking out of a store. They look perfectly fine. Yeah. So I can look at them and say, Gee, should they really be using that permit?" And the answer is, I don't know because they yeah. could have an invisible disability. So I I try not to be judgmental on those folks, and it's not easy. You know, if you're going to park there, and I'm not trying to give away secrets to anybody, at least have the decency of having a permit. But other than that, have a conscience and just don't mm -hmm. just don't do it. I, I think maybe we should help people understand that those accessible parking spots aren't it's not just about them being close to the front door. While right. certainly that is part of it, no denying, they are often wider because it gives yeah. you more space between you and the car next to you and someone that is a chair user. A very right. good example, if you have a hydraulic that's bringing your chair down, you need more space to your right or left. Is it about the length of it? Because a lot of the times that there is, um, particularly if you have uh, vans and you have to have access through the back of the, the vehicle. So I think people need to understand that it's more than just 
closeness to the front door. But the way I also approach it when people come to me and they say, oh, I was only there for 10 minutes or this and that. And I say, look, let's get this straight for, for just one second. I park in a handy, I park in a reserved parking space because I need to. Mm. You park there because you want it to. And if you even just look at it from an equitable standpoint. Yep. Your day doesn't have the same 24 hours in it as mine does as a non-wheelchair user. Now, people will go, what? Everyone has the same 24 hours. No, no, no. We will just use the example of a wheelchair user. Things just take longer. Getting out of bed is going to take longer. Getting into the shower is going to take longer. Getting into the car, getting out of the car is going to take longer. Getting to your destination is going to take longer, which steals from your 24 hours. So in terms of equitable outcomes, you should be closer to the front door. So accessible restrooms. Um, I'm not going to go down the whole avenue of them being turned into storerooms and you know, I mean, if you run an organization, they should be accessible, not just have a sticker on the outside and be used for other things, assuming that you don't have anyone that's ever going to need them. I mean, I have a friend that's told me a really horrible, humiliating story um, and his impact in his work environment because people use it for the shower after the gym. And mm. so the impact on him, literally, he would pee his pants. Sure. Yeah. Um, sure. I respect that. How can we illustrate for people the importance of just because there's no one lined up for it doesn't mean someone's not going to need it in the next 30 seconds? I mean, let's be let's be real when it comes to that for just a second. When you got to go, you got to go. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if it was the last, you know, I if it was the last stall and you had to go, you had to use it. All right, fine. I get it. One of my very good friends. Um, our friendship started on just that basis because I went into a men's room. It was in, in the office that I was working. I went into the men's room. He happened to be in that stall and he came out and he looked at me and I'm the only person in my office in a wheelchair. And I just looked at him and very sarcastically said, really, you, really, you had to use that stall. And I just, I dead faced him. I just, you know, very deadpan. And he looked around, he looked around and I said, look, I'm just kidding. If you had to go, you had to go. Like you have to, there's a way that we can be disarming about it. Um, but just if you don't have to use that stall, please don't. Last resort. Last resort. So you shared working in Connecticut, there's a lot of historical buildings that, uh, and I'm going to make an assumption here, that often have historical holds over them or preservation requirements over them. Do you have that? Yeah. Certainly, to a certain degree, yes. Does that affect um, those rules? Does that affect their requirement to be accessible? I think the best way to answer that is that I don't think it, it doesn't affect their uh, their requirement to be accessible as long as there's a way to make them accessible. Okay. Some structures, uh, and, and there may not be so many in, in Connecticut, but some structures and other certainly other parts of the country, you just you just can't do it. There is a limit to what can be done. So even some of the accessibility uh, features, if you will, that have been added to some of them are not uh not sufficient they're not adequate they're not enough so would you advise then communities repurpose those buildings not for business purposes or not for customer facing purposes and go find a building that is accessible um i'm on a committee in connecticut that we're 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 preparing for our um 250th anniversary which is not for three years but you start planning now and we've had conversations about, you know, again, making sure that we have 
our meetings and our events in, in accessible locations. If the historical sites allow for that, then that's great. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't repurpose the sites, what you might, the sites themselves, what you might consider is alternative sites, building alternative sites or using technology to enhance the accessibility of those sites. Mm -hmm. So if somebody can't physically visit a site, maybe you put a virtual tour on your website, for example, mm -hmm. um, or you have an alternate site off site that says, you know, we, we, in the spirit of, of the laws, you know, we've done everything that we can. Um, this is what you might be missing. Uh, but the only way, and I'm not, listen, I, I shouldn't be the sole person speaking on this because I'm one no, person. It's just with your opinion, John. Yeah, it's all good. But I think, but I think if you're, but I think if you're going to go down the road of having that kind of conversation, you would need to convene a, a, a fairly significantly large group of people with all sorts of disabilities to speak to access on that level. To to address that for for our historical sites, yeah. um, because some of them certainly operate far better than others, uh, for a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's certainly some that are are a challenge from at least from a physical access standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it was in Australia, but I was working with a town council, for lack of a better term, and their local courthouse was in an historical building that its access was just impossible to solve for. Like you were just saying, that it was built in such a way, in such a configuration that it just couldn't be done. Um, so they've kept the building, turned it into a museum, and now they have a modern built courthouse. I think the other thing when it comes to access to historical buildings, because I've experienced this myself, if I have to go to a separate door but still either ring a doorbell or get someone else to open that door for me, mm -hmm. that's not equal access. Good point. And so in simple terms, when you're creating an access solution, whether it's physical access, hearing access, vision access, um, it shouldn't be with undue effort on the person. Correct. Yeah, good. I'm glad Correct. you brought that one up, John. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> learning point for everyone today. <laughs> um, perfect highlight. Obviously, you can see that disability inclusion is really high on my list. Um, so um, I want to thank you for everything that you had to share today. My pleasure, Dr. Liz, and and, uh, and I hope we stay in touch. This has been wonderful. Oh, absolutely. I hope we get to work together at some point. I'm going to put your LinkedIn profile in the description of the podcast. So if anyone wants to sure. connect with you, they can find your details there. Excellent. All right. It was great talking to you today, John. You too, Dr. Liz. Thanks so much for everything. Mm -hmm.